listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Quickly, uh, as Alan and Bree are coming up here, Alan Tigers, our college life minister with his wife, Bree, and coming up with them is Wyatt King and his wife, Anne, and they're popping up here today, which we're grateful for that because uh, starting next Sunday, October 1st, uh, Alan is going to begin a 10-week sabbatical, and uh, this is something that our elders uh, years ago uh, approved for our staff who've been with us for seven years or longer. Uh, Alan qualifies because he's been with us for over 12, so that qualifies. Uh, and though he'll be our first staff person doing this, uh, a sabbatical really is, uh, it's not a vacation. He's not going on vacation. Uh, it is for the purpose of renewal and revitalization and seeing ministry from a fresh perspective. And it gives an opportunity really to disengage from all of the weekly tasks and and the drive that you've been doing so that you can experience mental, emotional, physical, spiritual renewal and spending time with the Lord in all of those ways. And so Alan's going to be doing that for a 10-week period of time. Uh, This was talked about over a year ago with our elders. Uh, Part of this conversation that was had over a year ago was also to so it could be kind of specifically chosen at a time when it would be mutually beneficial to Alan as well as to our college life ministry as well. And so this time frame was chosen as, as that opportunity to do that. And uh, so Alan will be doing this. Uh, he's going to be spending time reading, solitude, coaching, counseling, um, abiding, with Jesus, uh, still being husband, still being father. Like he's not leaving. You, in fact, some of you might see him around. It, it could happen. You might see him. He's, he's not disappearing anywhere. But for 10 weeks, he's going to be doing that. And so we're just really praying for that. We're just praying that this could be a time of renewal and revitalization for Alan in this time and rest. It's, it's not, he's not doing it because something's wrong. Uh, he's doing it because we want healthy leaders uh, in our church. And so he's doing it and part of that. And part of that healthiness too is that um, the ministry continues. You know, part of a sabbatical is just, it's trust that God is going to sustain you and he's sustaining the work that he's doing. And then also as Alan does that, our college life ministry is going to be in pretty good hands as well because uh, Wyatt King and his wife, Ann, they've been a part of our Northside family. Uh, Wyatt is the outreach minister at Christian Campus House here in town, which we have a great partnership with. And Wyatt and Alan are meeting and planning for all of this because Wyatt's going to serve part-time for us, uh, specifically in the areas of just the college life ministry. So uh, College Life AM, he'll be teaching that class. He'll be leading and discipling our college life uh, interns. Uh, He will be participating in our staff meetings with us starting this coming Monday, jumping in with us on Mondays for that, which we're excited about. And so Wyatt and Ann will be a part of this journey with us over the next 10 weeks, which we're grateful for that. And so thank you, you guys, for all of this too. And we just want to take a moment right now and just pray. And you can, as well as the church, 
Pray for Alan and Bree during the season. Pray for Wyatt and Ann with their ministry. And just pray that God uses this uh, just as a real blessing to renew. So we're just going to pray for that right now. So if you just extend your hand here towards the stage to them, let's just pray together, Lord. You were the one that, that created Sabbath. And Sabbath was created for us. You gave it to us as a gift, and not just as a gift, but something essential for our lives and for our bodies and for our minds and for our, our souls. And so, Lord, we're just praying for that rest and renewal for Alan over these next 10 weeks. Holy Spirit, we're praying that you would just grow in him even more deeply, your fruit. And so the, the love and joy the peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, this to be evident in our lives, would that would just grow and be evident. Alan, we want to pray for renewing of the Spirit and just, Lord, for your work in Him and for Bree as well and for their family, that, God, you would just use this as a real blessing in their lives. And so we're praying for that. Lord, we're praying just your care for their hearts and you would bless and strengthen them. And the Lord, we're praying also just for Wyatt Mann and even as they step into this role and, and they begin to step into this responsibility, we thank you for their willingness. We thank you for their faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for the spirit that resides in them to move and to work and just pray. Uh, as they continue to serve and work in our college life ministry, we, God, we're just grateful for that incredible work that's already happening. And we just want to pray that you would help it to thrive and grow and uh, even more as... They all work together to make disciples. We just want to see your vision realized through their lives. And so just pray your blessing and strength to them as well, your care for them and their hearts. And Lord, as a church family, I think there's also just a spirit of gratitude right now, just thankfulness. Lord, for Alan and Bree, for over 12 years of ministry and just for their work. And I know their ministry was going strong before they ever came here. And so for these many years of just serving your bride, the church, we are grateful for that and thank you for that. And Lord, pray you prepare them for many more. And so we pray your strength and blessing to them and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Can we just express our appreciation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, church family, let's stand together this morning for the reading of God's Word. We want to read from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18 today. As we come to the Word of God, we just want to ask that God would just speak to us and we would hear from Him today and that His Word would come alive in our hearts. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. If you'd like to follow along, this will be right up here on the screen. Paul, who writes this, says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. In everything, he might have the supremacy. 
Paul mentions seven unique characteristics of Jesus, really in verses 15 through 20. There's no other place in Scripture where so much is packed in such a few verses about the deity of Jesus and his supremacy of who he is. We're not going to cover all of them today. I know last week we covered the firstborn over all creation and, and being he is the image of the invisible God. We covered both those things last week. We'll cover one or two next week. But today what we're going to look at is going to show you that he is the supreme sovereign of the universe. He is everything. In fact, today we want to look at reasons why Jesus is that supreme sovereign of the universe. So you may be seated as we look through this together and point out some things from this text. Here's the first thing I want us to note today. The very first thing is this. All things have been created in and through Jesus. All things have been created in and through Jesus. Everything. Christ is the means by which God created. Creation is Christ's party. He's the one that invited us to it. He's the one that gave us transportation to it. It's his party. He's the means by which it happened. Everything was created in him and through him. Jesus is the who and the why behind everything we see and don't see. He's the who and the why behind everything we see and don't see. Heavens and earth, visible and invisible. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible. He's the why behind it all. If you were to take away the heavens and the earth and that which is visible and invisible, what do you got left? Nothing. It means he was the one who created it all. It was through Jesus. And one of the questions we might look at when you're reading through Colossians and we come to this poem, this hymn that we're reading together in Colossians chapter 1 is why would Paul spend so much time focusing on Jesus as creator? He does quite a bit here as he begins this poem. And the reason, I like the way Michael DeFazio says it, is because there's no shortage of competition for people's faith and devotion. The surest way to tell who deserved to rule the world is by asking, well, who put it here in the first place? If we don't get this right, who the creator is, we're not going to get anything else right. Why would Jesus reign or rule in your life if he didn't actually, if he wasn't the one responsible for it? If he wasn't responsible for creating life, then why would he have any authority over our life? It begins with God as creator, Jesus as creator. He's the who and why behind everything. If he created it, then he is worthy of my love. If he created it, then he is worthy of my devotion. If he created it, which is crucial to the Christian faith, then and only then does he have a right to reign and rule in my life. It's the same reason that throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, there's an explanation and there are arguments for God as creator. We were talking through this months ago in our sermon planning with our whole preaching team. And I remember that day, uh, Corey Scott on our team said, hey, have you seen that video by John Lennox? I had not seen that video yet. But John Lennox is an Oxford mathematician, and he was presenting to the Union Oxford Society, which was a, a, a room full of mathematicians and scientists and higher thinkers, and as he was presenting to this room, and so it's, it's done in a scholarly, scholastic way, he's ar- arguing for God's existence. And he's also arguing for God as creator. 
And so in that formal setting, he said really some some really good things. And I'm going to share quite a few of them with you today. In fact, I, I can just acknowledge right now, um, I'm going to share a lot of what he said over the next couple pages. Uh, I will be quoting him basically. And what I'm going to quote from him is without question, the longest quote I've ever given in the history of sermons. So that's been a long time. I mean, I've, I've been preaching sermons here for over 29 years. And so, and if, several before that. So I, I've never done it quite like this before. But there is just such good information that I want to share with you. And you could YouTube him. You would find him. His name's John Lennox. In fact, he does a lot of debates as well. He's done it with Richard Hawkins and other atheists just for the existence of God and creation. One of the things he said, uh, and you'll hear it here in a minute. I'll read it again. But he said, those who say that we have to choose between God and science. And this is coming from a mathematician, scientist. He said, it's like asking people to choose between Henry Ford and engineering for the explanation of the motor car. He said it this way. He said, I believe in God. I believe in the supernatural God who created the heavens and the earth. And I believe on the basis of rational evidence. He said, in the rise of science in the 16th and 17th century, Alfred North Whitehead and many others, they commented that men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they expected a law giver. In other words, he said, I'm not ashamed of being both scientist and Christian because arguably Christianity gave me my subject. He says, what I'm amazed at is serious thinkers today ask us to choose between God and science. That's like asking people to choose between Henry Ford and engineering for the explanation of the motor car. When Newton discovered his law of gravity, he didn't say, I got a law, I don't need God. He wrote the Principia of Mathematica, arguably the greatest work in the whole history of science. Because he saw that God is not the same kind of explanation as the scientific explanation. God doesn't compete. Agency doesn't compete with mechanism and law. He asked this question, why is there something rather than nothing? He said, Alan Sandage, a brilliant cosmologist, became Christian in his 50s, said God is the answer to that question. But people are now so desperate to show the the universe created itself from nothing, which seems to me to be an immediate oxymoron. Here's how he explained it. He said, if I say X created Y, I know some of you just checked out. This is math. It looks like math, right? So some of you just, you just checked out, but this is simple math. If I say X created Y, I'm assuming the existence of X to explain the existence of Y. That makes sense. If I say X created X, I'm assuming existence of X to explain the existence of X. Which simply shows that nonsense is nonsense, even if high-powered scientists utter it. He said, it reminds me a little bit of G.K. Chesterton, who said, it is absurd to complain that it's unthinkable for an unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing. And then to pretend that it is more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalmist said. He said, it seems to me that Arno Allen Penzias had it right. He is the Nobel Prize winner who discovered the microwave background on which a lot of the evidence for the Big Bang theory is based. He said, astronomy leads us to a unique event. A universe which was created out of nothing 
one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the right conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. He said, I want to come to what I would consider one of the greatest arguments for theism, or one of the most fundamental arguments for theism. He said, the universe is rationally intelligible. That is something which has struck some of the geniuses of science that demands an explanation. He said, Einstein said, the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. The irony of the atheist position is evident. My atheist friends, and I have many of them, he says, tell me that the driving force of evolution, which eventually produced our human cognitive faculties, reason included, was not primarily concerned with truth at all, but with survival. And we all know, ladies and gentlemen, what has often happened and still happens to truth when individuals or commercial enterprises or nations feel themselves threatened and they struggle for survival. A leading philosopher, Alvin Planting of Notre Dame, he says, if atheists are right that we are the product of mindless, unguided, natural processes, then they have given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties and therefore inevitably to doubt the validity of any belief they produce, including their atheism. Their biology and their belief in naturalism would therefore appear to be at war with each other in a conflict that has nothing at all to do with God. He says, yet my atheist friends still insist that it is rational for them to believe that the evolution of human reason was not directed for the purpose of discovering truth. And yet it is irrational for me to believe that human reason was designed and created by God to enable us to understand and believe the truth. Curious logic. He said, by contrast with that, biblical theism asserts that ultimate reality is personal and intelligent. And the reason science works, and this was the motivating force behind the great pioneers of science, is that the universe out there and the human mind in here that does the science are ultimately the product of the same intelligent divine mind. Human beings are made we are told in God's image. And that means that science can be done. That makes infinitely more sense to me as a scientist than atheism does. And then he talks about ethics. And he says, ethical behavior, like rational behavior, of course, does not require religious belief. This is consistent with the fact that humans are created in God's image as rational, moral persons. But just as I suggest that rationality cannot be explained without the existence of God. So I dare to suggest that the existence of morality cannot be explained either. The value of a human being on which certain egalitarianism rests is based not on what a human being can do, but on who she's made to be or how she's made in God's image. And I I like this, what he said. He said, I'll never forget speaking uh, when one of my, at one of my many visits to Russia to a colleague in the Academy of Sciences, and he said, you know, John, we thought we could abolish God and retain a value for human beings. We found we couldn't. And we've murdered millions of them. And Alexander Solganitsyn said, if I'm asking, if I'm asked, why is it that 60 million of my fellow countrymen were sacrificed? He said, the answer is, we have forgotten God. 
He said, science, of course, marvelous as it is, is limited. Even a Nobel Prize winner, by analyzing a cake, cannot tell why it was made. But Aunt Matilda, who made the cake, she can. She can tell you why it was made. She can reveal it to you. He says, it's the same with the universe. We can analyze it magnificently, but ultimately, if it has a maker, and I believe it has, only he can tell you what it's all about, and he's done so. And the powerful narrative of the Bible, in particular in its analysis of the problem of humanity, not simply in terms of behavioral breakdown between people, but a vertical breakdown of trust between us and the Creator. The unique solution to the problem is not simply in terms of human ethical development, although that's very important, but in terms of something far deeper altogether, the restoration of a fractured relationship with God through salvation that He's brought through Jesus Christ, a radical relationship that empowers us to live ethically from God. And here we reach what for me is a chief evidence, not only for existence, but the nature of God. It is Jesus Christ. I just love hearing somebody in that setting bring out the most important evidence of all. There, at the Oxford Union Society, he could say it was Jesus. He says, He it was who not only taught the golden rule, but embodied it, fed the hungry, healed the sick and suffering, and welcomed society's outcasts, brought honor and respect to the marginalized and ashamed. And he has brought forgiveness and peace to, to multi-millions around the world. He's able to do this, of course, because though he was a man... He uniquely never was only a man, but God become human. The central evidence for this startling claim is, of course, the historical resurrection from the dead that launched Christianity in the world. This, of course, he said, ladies and gentlemen, is the crunch issue. If Jesus rose from the dead, death is not the end and atheism is false. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christianity is false. He said, I remember at Cambridge as a student listening to the brilliant Sir Norman Anderson, a legal expert, going through forensically the evidence from his legal perspective as a brilliant lawyer. And he said, at the end of it, the empty tomb then of Jesus forms a veritable rock on which all rationalistic theories of the resurrection dash themselves in vain. Just finally now, as I read the Bible... I do not only find individual satisfaction, but I find a great deal of that. I sense the voice of God speaking to me. And you say that's intensely personal. But ladies and gentlemen, we've been asked tonight about belief in God. And I want to strongly emphasize that God is not a theory. He's a person. I've come to know Him and trust Him. And I have strong reasons for doing so because of Christ dying and rising again for me. And that has generated in me a sense of utterly unmerited forgiveness, acceptance, and peace that has enabled me to face the ugly side of my own nature with God's help to do something about it. And he said, it's enabled me to, to face something else. The hardest problem I face as a Christian is the problem of evil and pain. My niece getting a tumor at 22 that kills her. What do I say to my sister? And this is the hardest problem we face, but it seems to me that atheism here has no answer because by definition, atheism believes that human death is the end and there's no ultimate hope. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, he said, we could stay here till midnight and beyond arguing, as has been done in this university for centuries, what a good God should, might, would, could, if not possibly make, just could he not have done, and we get nowhere. So it seems to be there's another question we can ask, and it's this. 
Granted that life presents us with a double picture. We see some beautiful things. We see some ragged ages. We see hurt and pain and we see joy. How can we come to terms with that? And he said, and it seems to me here's no simplistic answer, but a window to an answer, and it's this. If it is actually true that Jesus is, as I believe him to be, the Son of God, then we can ask the question, what is God doing on a cross? And the answer comes back at the very least. God has not remained distant from our human suffering, but he's become a part of it. And the other side of this is this. Because Jesus rose from the dead, he's going to be the ultimate judge. And here's the irony, because atheism has no ultimate hope or justice by definition. The vast majority of people in the history of the world, they've died without justice. And they will die without justice. And if death is the end, then of course they have no hope for ultimate justice. But the promise of the New Testament that it guarantees by the resurrection of Jesus is that he is the judge in the coming day. And he said, those are some of the reasons why I believe that God is real and worthy to be trusted. Thank you. Is that not great? So good. Like a tapestry, all the threads are woven together. He's just given a few of those threads, some of the reasons that really show the whole of who God is. Brandon McGuire, who was talking about Richard Dawkins, who's, who's an atheist and denies the existence of God. And Brandon was saying about Dawkins, he's like, Dawkins, like other atheists, he will often acknowledge that when you see a book, it's logical that there's an author of that book because there's language inside the book and language requires intelligence. He will acknowledge that when he sees a feat of engineering, It's logical to conclude that there was a mind behind that design because intelligence is required for there to be an engineer. He will acknowledge when you see beauty on a canvas, a painting, that it is logical to assume that there is a mind behind the creation of the painting because minds are there to create beauty as well. But when you look at the universe itself, which contains all of those things to the nth degree and much more, because it also includes things like that humans have, like rights and dignity and there's morality, etc., etc., he looks at all of that and all of a sudden says no. Suddenly now, the same logic that applies to everything else does not apply to everything. Logic that applies to all of the particulars does not apply to the whole system. And for some reason, he cannot see that the only logical explanation for the universe, that is for reality itself, is that it is a derivative of divine intelligence. It's a logical explanation if we're going to be consistent. The only reason we wouldn't see it that way is if we fear a moral lawgiver or a heavenly father. And so when we're in the book of Colossians and Paul writing to the people of Colossae would say to us in chapter 1 and verses 16 and and following, 15, 16 and following, and he would say to us about Jesus that in him all things were created, all things were created through him, that we can say first of all, all things were created in and through Jesus, number one. But number two, we can say this because the text goes on to say it was created for him. All things were created to and for him. So all things were created in and through him, and all things were created to and for him. In and through, to and for. In and through, to and for. He's the why and the who. Jesus is not only the starting point, but he's the goal of absolutely everything. Creation was for him. 
we often, with our minds in the Western civilization, just want to know how it happened. We just want to know how, the science behind it, the process. We, we want to know the process, the how. But really, the ancients were more focused on the why, the purpose. We focus on how, they focused on who and why. What was the purpose of creation? And so what we see here is our purpose of existence. It was for Jesus. It was for the glory of God. That means nothing finds true meaning outside of his rule. He's our source of sustenance. Apart from ongoing nourishment, everything that would disintegrate into nothingness if he was not a part of it. In him, everything holds together. He is creation's glue from which everything is held. He's not a principle, idea, or virtue. He's a person. He's the thread that weaves everything together. This means Jesus is creator. And and if as if Paul hasn't gotten specific enough, because he said everything on heaven and earth, visible and invisible, I would think that would cover it. And then he's like, well, just in case you missed it, he goes on. Like thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. He starts talking about these these powers and and power structures. So like thrones, I mean, the position or the office that survives even if the person is no longer with us. Dominions or powers, some translations will say powers, which means lordships of persons or groups. Rulers, that's the person at the top, the first in rank. Authorities, those are positions of legitimate authority, principal, superintendent, policeman, judge, whatever. The authorities, all of it. By him, for him, through him, in him. You're like, well, wait a minute. What, what kind of power is he really talking about, though? Is it spiritual? Because some people will say, hey, this is, he's talking about the spiritual forces, the spiritual battles going on. He's dominion over that. And some people say, well, no, it's, it's the physical structures and systems of, of this world. He's talking about that. So which one is it? I appreciate Michael DeFazio in his book, More Jesus, where he says it's both. It's both. He said heaven and earth. (laughs) He said visible and invisible. It's both. That's the kind of power it is. Paul's terms refer to both forms of power, even in other places in the New Testament. He talks about thrones, and when he does, sometimes he's talking about God, or sometimes he's talking about Satan, or about the apostles, or human leaders, or spiritual powers and authorities. Plus, in Paul's world, the two realms were not considered to be distinct, but we're overlapping anyway. That, that's, their mindset was like that. And besides that, Paul's referring to everything, visible, invisible, heaven and earth. He's talking about in every realm, Jesus rules and reigns and has power. And it communicates this one truth that's so important that nothing and no one in this or any other world is more powerful than Jesus. Nothing and no one. In, in this or any other realm or world, wherever, is more powerful than Jesus. Because all things have been created in and through him. All things have been created to and for him. And then Paul also says this, and all things were held together by him. All things were held together by Jesus. Christ is, is not only the one through whom it came to be, but he's the one that it continues to exist. It continues to sustain. He's the one that holds it together. There's nothing more powerful than Jesus. And if you do not see Jesus in this way, we're making too small of him. And that's a problem. 
Because if we don't understand Jesus as creator and as Lord, if we don't understand his realm of rule and power, that he is supremely sovereign over the entire universe, then why would you ever let him be sovereign of your thoughts that you're thinking or the words that you're speaking or the actions that you're displaying? Why would he be Lord over any of it If he is not supremely sovereign, why would you submit your will to his will and say, not my will be done, but your will be done? Why would we submit ourselves to his lordship if he's not king and reigning over it all? That's the problem in the world. But we don't see Jesus big enough. Therefore, he is not Lord over our hearts. J.B. Phillips. He once wrote a whole book on this subject. He called it, Your God is Too Small. And in that book, he declares that many of us have failed to permit ourselves to be grasped by a God who is big enough to account for all of life, big enough to transcend the scientific age, big enough to command our highest respect and admiration, and therefore our willing cooperation. We don't think he's big enough. We like to make God what we want him to be. We don't like a God who disagrees with us. We don't like a God that we can't control and do what we want to do and be comfortable with. We have to see him as creator in order for him to be Lord. Jackie Hill Perry in Christian Sexuality Series, in fact, our freshmen are going through that uh, this semester. She said last week in that uh, video, she said, why was God revealed in Scripture first as creator and not Lord or authority? She said, if he's my maker, then he has, then he is my authority. If he's my maker, then he is my Lord. It starts with how God created us and who he created us to be. And Paul is giving this argument to the people of Colossae who are in a region that's hearing all of these competing and false ideas, just as we are today whether it's the existence of God or how it came to be, who created or who didn't create, what's the, the start of all of this? And so by the time we get to Colossians chapter 2, I want us to look at just a couple verses together. Here's what Paul would say in verse 4 and then in verses 6 through 8. He says, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. And that really is my prayer for all of us, for you today as well, that you would receive Jesus Christ as Lord, that you would, be, you would live in him and be rooted in him and strengthened in him and built up in him and in your faith as you were taught and that you would overflow with thankfulness. And I long for that for you because you too are in a culture that is, has many competing ideas and false ideas and deception and who want to take captive you through hollow and deceptive philosophies. And Paul's saying, be on your guard against this. It's luring you away from who God is. Be on your guard from these philosophies. To to take captive means to kidnap and carry off involuntarily. Our, Our world is wanting to do this with you. Don't be swept away with these false ideas. And he says, there is deficiencies in any teaching that competes 
with the gospel of Jesus. And a few of the dimensions right here in that text was this. Number one, false teaching only sounds good on the surface. Like it, it sounds appealing. It's a fine sounding argument. False teaching could come across as, oh, maybe that's, oh, that's good. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's right. But a few hundred years of secular humanism has taught us that we do not actually possess the power to fix ourselves. So don't be deceived. Number two, he reveals that false teaching is seduction. It seduces you with the promise of more, but it cannot produce. It cannot lead to that which is good. Not at all. It doesn't actually add value to your life. It's worthless, pointless, devoid of real moral, intellectual, or spiritual value. He says false teaching is based on human tradition. It's human tradition. This is not of God. Even Isaiah would talk about how people would go through emotions and create their own rules and their priorities, but their hearts were not dedicated to the Lord. And the last, I'm just going to mention this, that false teaching, it's not based on Christ. Because God has revealed himself most clearly in Jesus. Any teaching apart from Christ, it steers us away from God. If it's not Christ-focused, we're being steered away from God because Christ is the image of the invisible God. It's who he is. And Colossians reveals that Jesus is the perfect revelation both of who God is and who you're created to be. His true gospel provides hope and redemption and a future. He's the one in and through. Everything was created. He's one, two, and four. It was created in him. All things are held together. He's more powerful than any of it. He is everything. He has the right to reign, the right to rule, the right to command our allegiance, the right for our obedience. He made us. He designed us. He loved us. He gave us life. He desires relationship and fellowship with us. All of this is who he is. He is supremely divine in every way. He is sovereign over it all. And we need to lift our eyes to see Jesus for who he really is. Almighty God, King of all creation. And we need to submit our lives to his reign and to his rule. This is who Jesus is. And my prayer today is that for each and every one of us that's hearing or listening today in this moment, that we would submit our lives to his reign and to his lordship. We would submit ourselves to Jesus knowing that he is truly the king, the maker, the creator of it all. He deserves our allegiance. And so we follow him We live out our lives to please him in every way so that we can live out who he created us to be. He's our designer. He is all-powerful. And my prayer is that if you've not yet made Jesus Christ the Lord and the Savior of your life, that today you will. You would believe. You would confess. You would repent of those sins. You would be baptized into Christ. We have another baptism get ready to happen here in our 1030 service. You would make that decision, submitting your life to his reign and rule in your life. It's also my prayer that for those of us perhaps who have made that decision, but today are feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit because he doesn't have the the reign of every area of my life, that we would recommit and rededicate, we would repent of our sins, and we would obey him and follow him. And I just want you to take a few moments just in silence to reflect on what God is saying to you. What would he have you to do this week, to obey this week? What is he saying or speaking to you right now through his word that he wants you to share with someone this week? What is that? And Take a moment and just reflect on what God is saying to you.
Heavenly Father. Help us to see Jesus clearly for who he really is. Lord Jesus, you are responsible for creation. And so Jesus, we are responsible to you. We answer to you. Lord, I just want to, I want to pray today that God, you would just, you would have our hearts. Lord, we would submit our lives to your Lordship in every way, in every area. We'd see you for who you really are. That Jesus, you would give us a higher vision to see your greatness. Lord, I pray that we would submit every area of our life to you. Whether that's through our, our actions and our words and our thoughts. Whether that's with the gifts and the abilities you've given us, whether it's with the finances and the resources you've provided to us, we want to give these to you as an act of worship. So Lord, I just want to pray that God, you would work in us and through us and Lord, we could live for who we were created to be. Jesus, we want to please you in every way. We give you the glory. To you it belongs. And we praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today, I just want to mention as well, as we respond today to who Jesus is, that here in a few moments as you leave, you're going to have an opportunity to give today to the Lord. And you're, you can do that at the boxes at the back of the room or with the information that's on your screen as a way that we submit our lives to his reign and to his lordship. It's a way we can respond and give to God today. But we also, in this moment, want to reflect and to remember who Jesus is. And so we're going to move into a time of quiet Reflection. Corey's going to be sharing with us today as we prepare our hearts for communion. And once communion is over, I'm going to be stepping out to Decision Point and, and would love to meet, talk, pray with anyone who would like to come today, whether it's to make a decision for Jesus, to become a member of this church, or perhaps you just want to pray together. would love to do that with you today here in a few moments. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.